Scripture reading will be from Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. And it reads, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You may be seated. Well, I'm delighted to be with you today. I'm very grateful for your presence this morning, and I look forward to being with you again tonight at 6 o'clock, and I hope that each of you will be able to be with us. It's always a pleasure for me to be with this very fine congregation. I bring you greetings from the Hanley Church of Christ in Fort Worth, Texas, where I was in a gospel meeting last week. Uh, Let me say that I'm very appreciative of Nat and Phil filling in for me, and I'm very thankful for them and hear many fine comments about uh, their work and about their service. And if I may, let me take just a brief moment to say that about uh, a number of people. Uh, uh, The singing that we've had today, the scripture reading, the prayers, all that take part in leading us in worship, I'm very grateful to you and, and for your talent that you're using your abilities for the Lord. I'm very grateful. And appreciative you appreciate you so much uh, uh, in that regard. And while I'm away, especially those filling in for me. Hanley Congregation is an old historic congregation among us as uh, brethren. I'm always happy to be with them. One of the elders came up to me about the conclusion of the meeting. And he said, you know, we want to have you come back. But we want you to come back before you get so old and decrepit. <clears throat> and I said, in that case, you better hurry up. And so I look forward to being back with the Hanley congregation sometime in the future. One of my favorite subjects, of course, would be about Christian living. I preach about it quite a bit, I know. Uh, It means a lot to me. It's important to me because I know I need it. And it's something that the church truly does need. And I think one thing that will help us grow as we ought as a congregation of God's people is to be the people who recognize the fact that we can build the church up through the way we live toward others. Now, not everyone is going to be able to stand up and teach a Bible class or stand up and preach a sermon as I'm doing today or to conduct perhaps even a Bible study. But all of us can build the church up by the kind of lives that we live. And that's reflected in this wonderful reading today, Matthew chapter 5. Now, I hope you have your Bible and that you turn to these important Bible passages as I make reference to them, that we truly can build up the church in the way that we live. Edward Gibbon, who had written that monumental work, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, who really was uh, an expert on that period of history, talks about the morals of the early church. He said the primitive Christians demonstrated his faith by his virtue. And in the work, he makes mention more than once of the kind of Christian life that early Christians lived and the influence that it had on the world around them and their community. And I think sometimes we fail to recall just how important our lives really are to other people and how we can build the church up by the way we live and by the way we influence others positively. 
So I want to talk about Christian living. It's not a new subject for us as we speak of it regularly from time to time. But I want to speak about it from the standpoint of building up the church. I want to speak about it from the standpoint of causing the church to grow and showing great influence for the body of Christ here at this place, a place that we've come to know and come to love. Fritz Kreisler was one of the great violin virtuosos of all time, and he was traveling from one concert to another, and he had a layover in the train depot. So he decided that he would go and browse around at a music store, which he saw just across the way. Carrying his uh, very famous violin with him, he laid it on the counter, and then began to browse around and look at the different sheets of music and the different uh, albums that they had. And uh, the storekeeper saw this violin case sitting there on the counter. And he saw the initials carved into it in gold, F-K. And he began to wonder, this must be misplaced. And so when Fritz Chrysler came up to uh, claim his violin, his violin case, the store owner said, how do I know now this really belongs to you? You might be just claiming it's yours, when really it belongs to someone else. And Pawnee said, do you have an album of Fritz Chrysler playing? And he said, yes, I do. He said, put it on the uh, recorder and the player. And so he began to listen to the beautiful strains of music that only Fritz Chrysler could make with regard to the violin. And when the recording was finished, he picked up the violin out of the case and began to reduplicate exactly that kind of beautiful melody. Whereupon the store owner said, It is a truth. This violin belongs to you. You see, it was not what he said that made the difference, but it's what he did. It was not what he claimed to be, but it's what he professed to be and what he demonstrated what he was. And so it is with children of God. It's not going to matter what we talk about. It's going to be what we do, how we demonstrate it, how we show it to others. We can talk about being Christian here and Christian there and Christian everywhere. But if we can't demonstrate it before others, it really does not matter. It's just a lot of talk. It's not what we claim we have read that matters. It's what we remember what we have read. It's not so much what we eat that matters. It's what we digest. It's not so much the money that we make that makes us wealthy. It's the money that we're able to save And it's not so much what we're able to say that makes us Christian. It's what we're able to do, how we demonstrate that before other people. We can say that we are Christian. We can say that we are Christian. But until we start living the faithful Christian life like we should, it's only a matter of talk. What is Christian living at its very heart? It's not only me being in Christ, but it's also Christ being in me. When I was a boy, one of the chores that I had and one of the responsibilities that I had, and I hated it very much, like all boys do when they have a regular routine, regular responsibility, was to keep the fires burning in the fall and in the winter months. By fires, we heated the house by uh, fireplace and by stove. And it was my job to keep those fires going. Now, there are two younger brothers that I had, and my question was, Why don't they get to do this? But I was the one that was given that job. And one of the things I noticed very early is when you build a fire, you can have the coal scuttle and your shovel and the rake and the poker, 
And when that fire is going, you take that poker and make that fire go hotter and hotter. And before you know it, if you put that poker into the fire and leave it there, not only is the fire in the poker, but you take that poker out, and now the fire is in the poker once the poker has been in that fire. And so it is with Christ. Christian living at its very heart means not only that I am in Christ like the poker's in the fire, but now Christ is in me like the fire's in the poker. We need to have that kind of attitude with regard to Christianity and our Christian living. Now, is that what the Bible says or not? Turn with me to the book of Galatians in Galatians chapter 3, and you have a beautiful passage of Scripture describing our relationship to Christ in verse 27. And I'd like to turn to that passage and read it for you today. And in doing that, encourage us, first of all, if you've never obeyed the gospel, do so. Because here's a Bible passage that explains it carefully to us. In verse 24, he begins, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Talking about the Old Testament law. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We're no longer under the old law and its dictates. We live by a new law, the law of Christ. Verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And here it is, verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now he uses the metaphor of putting on. Those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Those who have been immersed in Christ for the remission of their sins are now in Christ. But let's notice in Galatians chapter 2, in the same book, verse 20, he tells us something of the importance of this matter, and I hope that you mark this passage in your Bible. It's meant so much to me. Galatians 2 and 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. Now this is such a beautiful passage. Galatians 2. And the verse is verse 20. It says that Christ died for me. And I really believe. Every time I think about this. And other passages like John 3, 16, 17. Various Bible passages. That if I were the only sinner in this world. If I were the only one. I believe God would send his son. To die on that cross, cross just for me that he would die on that cross and go through that ordeal so that I, as the only sinner in the entire world, would have hope for obtaining eternal life, have hope for eternal communion with God, and have the present reality of the forgiveness of sins. Fact of the matter is, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us are sinners. But God loved us so much that if I were the only one, he'd done it all just for me. And now, Christ, Paul says, lives in me. You see, one passage, Galatians 3 and 27, says he is in Christ. Another passage in Galatians 2.20 says Christ is in him. You see, Christian living really obtains. When I am in Christ, by means of the new birth, John 3, 3 through 5, Having been obedient to the gospel, having repented of my sins, confessed my faith, been baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, I now am in Christ, Galatians 3 and 27. 
But now I have the responsibility of living for Christ and doing what Christ has told me to do and following the life outlined by inspired apostles and teachers of Christ in the New Testament. And that in turn, Christ is now living in me. That's when Christian living obtains. When one is in Christ and Christ is in them. When the poker's in the fire and the fire's in the poker. That's when Christian living really takes place. It's not when we talk about it. It's not when we say this or claim that. It's when we really do it. And Christ is living in us. Christian living. We can talk about the importance of repenting of sin, and we should. I don't see how we could minimize the importance about that. And uh, the importance of confessing our faith, and we should. How could we neglect that? Well, we just can't be pleasing in the sight of God. And talk about being baptized into Christ, you can't overemphasize that. Somebody said, well, I hear that a lot. Well, you ought to hear that a lot. We ought to talk about that a lot. How can you overemphasize something that fundamental? You can't overemphasize the fundamental nature of things like that. But it's going to take the rest of our lives to live the Christian life. And it's going to take the doing of it. We can talk about becoming a Christian, and well, we should. But we need to talk about living the Christian life. We can build the church up by the lives that we live and positively influence other people for Christ. I read the story on one occasion about the life of David Lipscomb. I'd always been impressed by these great pioneer preachers. Lipscomb was a great courageous man, a great preacher of righteousness, and I admired David Lipscomb greatly. Living in the Nashville uh, area, he and William Lipscomb started the Gospel Advocate and he was a student of Talbert Fanning. Talbert Fanning was one of the great uh, premier preachers in the Southeast in that day and time. And in fact, he started Franklin College, which became the prototype for all the other Christian colleges that we have today. They all are patterned after, after Talbert Fanning's Franklin College, the foundation stones of which are still on a portion of the Nashville airport. It was my privilege on one occasion to talk to a lady, a very elderly lady, when I was just a young boy, who went to Charlotte Fanning's School for Girls. Now, back in that day, the boys did not go to school with the girls. The boys had their school, and the girls had theirs. So, Talbert Fanning had the school for the boys, Franklin College, whereas Charlotte Fanning was in charge of the school for the girls. And here I'm sitting in this living room in an old log cabin talking to an elderly lady who went to Charlotte Fanning's School for Girls. And I'm just all ears listening to all of the discussion. I went down this excursion on memory lane to help explain something of the great contribution that David Lipscomb made a long time ago. There was an individual in the congregation would not obey the gospel. And as he uh, continued to refuse, continued to refuse, the brethren brought in some of the very finest gospel preachers preaching sermons. And they tried to encourage him to obey the gospel. Sit down with him about Bible studies and studying with him about the gospel. His wife's a member of the church. He wasn't a member of the church and never would obey the gospel. They brought in gospel meeting sermons and gospel preachers to preach gospel meetings and still he wouldn't obey. 
Well, that brethren pretty well gave up on him until one day he stepped forward and he went down the aisle and he obeyed the gospel. He confessed his faith, baptized into Christ, repenting of his sins. And the congregation was just overjoyed over the fact. One of the brethren came up to him afterward and asked him a question. He said, what was it that really moved you? We have tried to talk to you and talk to you. What really moved you into obeying the gospel? He said, well, I'll tell you something. He pointed his finger over at the other side of the crowd. That man right there, David Lipscomb. If the gospel will make men like that, I want to be a Christian. It wasn't all the powerful preaching. It wasn't all the rhetoric. It wasn't all of the influence that these great men had, and they were influential men in their own right. It was the Christian living of David Lipscomb that influenced that man to obey the gospel of Christ. We can build the church by our Christian lives. We can use our influence on others to help them see I'm not only in Christ, but Christ is also in me. He's influencing me. He has changed my life. He's made a better life for me. I have the peace that passes understanding. I have the joy unspeakable of being a Christian. And I'm going to a place far better than this world is. And that place is home where Christ has gone on before me. And there in turn to be with Christ forever and ever. Now you and I can do that. You and I can build a better church and build the church up and create greater influence for the church of our Lord by living the kind of life that God has given me to live in the pages of the Bible. That's what Christian living is all about. When I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. Now let me add this caveat to the matter. Let me add this warning. I can tear the church down by the life I live. If I'm not living the kind of influential Christian life I should be living, I can be a detriment to the church. You know what the Bible calls that? Stumbling block. The Bible says I can be a stumbling block if I'm not actually living the Christian life and demonstrating that before other people. They'll look at my life and they'll say, Whoa, wait a minute. I don't want to have any part of that. I don't want to have any kind of life like that. If that's the kind of people they are, I don't want to be like them. I can be a stumbling block to other people if I fail to live the Christian life like I should. To each is given a set of tools and a shapeless mass and a book of rules. And all must build ere life is flown a stumbling block or a stepping stone. Which one will you be? Will you be the stumbling block or will you be the stepping stone that leads someone to Christ now up to this particular point in time I've talked in general terms logicians call that abstraction I've spoken in rather abstract terms and preachers and it's one of my big criticisms of preachers we spend too much time talking in the abstraction let's get down to real brass tacks here Let's start talking about living the Christian life and what it really means. What does living the Christian life really mean? It means living a surrendered life. Now, this is not a new point to you and me. We've talked about this a number of times, but it's something that we need to consider carefully. Am I going to live a surrendered life? Now, this is easier said than done. When we talk about surrendering my life to someone else, 
or to the cause of Christ or the church of Christ, the people who belong to Christ. That's easier said than done. That means I'm going to take myself out of the picture and I'm going to put Christ in the place of it. Now that is against what I normally want to do. What I normally want to do is I want to be the one that calls all the shots here. I want to be the one that makes all the decisions with regard to my life. I'm not going to give up my life. I'm not going to surrender my life to anybody or anything. Now, there are people like that. And some of that you'd have to admire in a way. I read the story of Napoleon and his march into Russia. And it was a rather epic-making historical event. And he came up to this one particular village in Russia, and uh, several were resisting uh, the French invasion of their country. And uh, this particular group was lined up before the executioners, and they were given one last chance to recant and give up and surrender to Napoleon and his army. And this one old fellow, he wouldn't do it. He was a carpenter. He wouldn't give up, not for a minute. So they took a hot branding iron with a letter N on it. said, stretch his hand out there. And they put that hot branding iron on his palm of his hand and in that burned the letter N for Napoleon on the hand of that carpenter. They said, now you belong to Napoleon. Whereupon, according to the story, that carpenter took an axe and chopped off his hand and threw it back at them and said, that hand may belong to Napoleon, but the man belongs to Russia. Some people will not surrender. And in that respect, you admire their devotion and their dedication, a point I'll get to in a moment. But that's the wrong kind of dedication, the wrong kind of devotion when we refuse to surrender to Jesus Christ. There are people who have that attitude. I'm not going to surrender. I'm going to have it all my way. It's my way or no way. It's my way or the highway. And I'm not surrendering to anybody or anything. But Christian living means we're going to have to surrender. We're going to have to take our part out of the picture and put Jesus Christ in its place. Now, is that the Bible or not? Let's go to Matthew chapter 16, and the verse is verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I'm reading from the Bible here. I'm reading Matthew 16 and verse 24. Verse 25 says, For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You've got to have the whole world, friend. But if you lose your soul, you made a bad bargain. This world's not going to be here for a very long time. This world's going to be gone. You may be given the entire world. But if you lose the soul over that, you failed in this matter of surrender, self-denial. Now, when I get that in my mind, Christian living means surrender. Christian living means self-denial. Christian living means being converted to Christ. That's going to answer the question. Where am I going to be Sunday night? Where am I going to be Sunday night? In fact, that's not even the right question. 
That's the wrong question to ask. Now, the right question to ask is this. What would Christ be doing on Sunday night? And then as a surrendered life, that means I'll be doing what Christ would be doing because I've surrendered. When we really get our minds wrapped around this Christian living and we understand that it means surrender, Matthew 16, 24 and following, then that's going to answer the question, how much am I going to give of my means? That's going to answer that. And really, that's the wrong question. The right question would be, what would Christ do? What would Christ do in a deal like that? And as a surrendered life, I will live the way Christ would do and live. When I get my mind around this surrendered life and Christian living like I should... That's going to answer some questions about living for Christ. What kind of speech should I be using? Well, that's the wrong question. The right question is, what kind of speech would Christ use? Because I've surrendered. And I live the life that Christ has told me to live. When I get my mind around this matter of the surrendered life and what Christianity really means, it's going to answer some questions for me. What kind of clothes should I wear? What kind of clothes should I wear? Now listen to me. Am I going to wear clothes that are provocative in nature, immodest in style, according to the style of this world? Well, that's not even the right question. What is the right question? What would Christ do in that deal? What would, he ha what would he wear? Then that answers the question for me. That's what I'm going to wear. Would he wear that kind of thing? Would he wear such clothing that would be provocative? Try to bring attention to myself? Attention from others? There's a surrender problem there. When I fail in my responsibility to live the kind of Christian life, it is because I have not come to grips with that point number one right there. A surrendered life. I haven't lived the surrendered life. I really am not living the kind of life that I ought to be living. I ought to be asking the question, what would the Lord do? What is His will in that regard? Have you ever sung this song? I'm sure you have because I've heard us sing it. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. You know, if we're not careful, we'll sing a better religion than what we practice. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. And this part really gets me. It's hard for me to even say this without choking up about it. 
all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Can you sing it? Do you believe it? Are we going to practice it? When we get our minds around Christian living and what it means and understand that it means a surrendered life, we can build the church up. We can build the church up in this place because people will look at our lives and want to say, I want to be like that. I want the life that that person has. I want the peace that that person has. I want the understanding that that person has. I want the knowledge that that person has. The kind of life that that person has. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 and 33. The Bible's filled with passages along this very important line. Have we missed the point here? In Matthew 6 and 33, he talks about all of the problems of life and the anxiety that people have over the uh, things of life. And then he says in verse 33... But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now in 33, says, seek this first. It's a priority matter. I'm going to seek the Lord first. I'm going to seek the kingdom of God first. And all these other matters will be added unto you. The other matters that he has reference to are the clothes that we wear, the food that we eat, all the necessities of life. It's a great passage. Matthew chapter 6 comes from the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. What a great lesson. You and I need this so much. I need to seek the kingdom of God first and foremost in my life. You know what he's calling about? He's calling about surrendered life. And he's not saying here to give it a half-hearted try. He's saying here, put it first. Put it first. You know, the guy runs track. He kneels down. I never ran track. Just wasn't built for the matter. But the guy that runs track, I've been to track meets and watched them run field and track. And they get down in that stance and they go for it. And I don't believe that there's a fellow running a sprint or a track or any of those races where he says, you know, I think I'll just try for a second, third or fourth here is all right. He wants first place. He gives it everything he's got in order to accomplish that matter. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22 and 37. This is what I think of when I think about the fellow trying to run track. And he said to him, verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Verse 40. I'm reading from the Bible here. I'm looking at Matthew 22, and I'm seeing at verse 37. And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Don't give it a half try, but you get everything you got. That's the surrendered life, giving God everything like I should. It was Lord George, who was Prime Minister of England on one occasion, who came across with a rather wise statement, I thought. I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it. One of the most dangerous things in the world is to try and leap a chasm twice. Now, he means in two jumps. You can't leap a ditch in two jumps where you jump 
and then try to get another try and jump as you clear the ditch. You can't do it. Now, if you go and try to jump a ditch twice, try to do it in two jumps, you're going to fail. And so it is in living the Christian life. If we try to do this in a half-hearted way, we're going to fail. But how many of us, and I put myself in the same category, I need this as much as anybody here. We put ourselves into such a situation where we say, well, I'm going to do a little bit. I'm going to try a little bit here. A little bit here and a little bit there. It's like trying to jump a chasm in two leaps, and it doesn't work. The only way to do it is to give it everything that you've got. Doesn't matter about this particular matter. Either Christ is in me and I'm in Christ, or I'm just giving it a half-hearted allegiance. Divided allegiance in this matter is not going to work. I saw a statement the lady said one time, and I can't remember where I read these things. They've come up in my reading and my studying and seeing these particular matters. But a lady said something of... uh, Gentleman, and she said, you know, that guy's miserable all the time. And the other lady said, well, why is he so miserable? Says, well, he's got just enough religion to, to be unhappy at the dance and not enough religion to be happy at prayer meeting. He just stays miserable all the time. And I thought, you know, that's pretty insightful. Too much to be happy at the dance and too little to be happy at the prayer meeting. Doesn't that describe you and me sometimes? You know, I'm miserable. And the reason I am miserable is because I've got just enough religion to keep me from doing this, that, and the other with enthusiasm. And not enough to be filled with joy and happiness with the opportunity of serving the Lord and serving others. I'm convinced that there are a lot of people that way. So let me ask you this question. Are you really happy in your Christian life? Are you really happy in the life that you are living? Some people are miserable. They come to church and worship service and they're miserable. But yet they don't want to go out and be like the world because they've got too much religion to do that. But yet when they come to worship service, they're just miserable. Don't even want to be in worship service. Don't enjoy the fellowship with saints and singing these beautiful songs. Are you happy in your religious life? If not, part of the problem is that point right up there in front of you. You've missed the point of surrender. You haven't learned to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, and there in turn, a divided allegiance is pulling you down. A divided allegiance is causing you to be unhappy. You have some desire to be a Christian, but you're not committed to it. You have some desire to be a Christian, but yet it's not your whole heart. You don't love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. No, I'm not that far along yet. And you're conflicted and you're divided because you have divided allegiance. And you don't have the spring in your step and the smile on your face that you normally would have. The joy in your heart of one who truly is given to God and given to Christ and serves Him day by day. 
Oh, we make mistakes along the way, and we commit sins, and we, rep- and we pray, and we repent, and we turn back to God. But our life is filled with joy because we love Him completely. And nothing is going to come between us and our devotion to God. But the person who's divided in their allegiance, they have one foot in the world and they want to have one hand in heaven. And to be stretched out like that is not going to work. You ever look at these electric lines out here? When you go out this building, look at these electric lines. You see how high up there in the air they are? Well, why don't we just put electric lines down like five foot off the ground? Well, you know, we can't do that because somebody would walk into them. And if you had one foot on the ground and you had one foot on the electric wire, it's going to kill you. You'll perish. But yet little birds put their little bodies up on that wire every day. They totally give themselves to it. They don't have one foot on the ground. They're up there on the wire. Our problem is we want to keep feet on the ground and a hand up in heaven. And you can't have both. And the Bible is telling us, we've got to make a commitment here. We've got to devote ourselves, commit ourselves to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. That is a surrendered life. A life that we give to God. Lord, this is my life. You use it. And let me spend my life in service for you and to others. And when it comes my time to shuffle off this mortal coil, as Shakespeare once put it, then I'll be ready to go to that place the Bible calls heaven, which will be everlasting communion with God. Because I live the surrendered life. No, I'm not just preaching to you. I'm speaking to myself. I've got to live that. I've got to learn to live that kind of life. I want to have Christ in me, and I want to be in Christ. Lord willing, I'd like to continue this thought tonight. Will you be with me? I hope and pray that you will. By 6 o'clock, if the Lord wills, we'll be together, and we'll study about this very important subject, living the Christian life. Before you can start living the Christian life, you're going to have to be a Christian. You and I have talked about that already this morning, how important it is to be in Christ. And that's why I went to Galatians 3 and 27, because it talks about how you become a child of God. It talks about how you become a Christian by repenting of your sins and confessing your faith. Romans 10, 9 and 10, by being baptized, that is, immersed in water for the remission of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. That's one of the reasons why that great Bible passage is so precise and helpful, because it gives us the reason. It tells us what baptism is, and it gives us the reason for it. It is for remission. The sins are washed away, Acts 22 and verse 16, at the point of biblical baptism. Biblical baptism is an immersion in water. That's what the word means. Buried with him in baptism. You might be raised together to walk in a newness of life. Romans chapter 6, verse 4 through 6. Before you can have Christ in you, you've got to be in Christ by being obedient to the gospel. And I urge you to do it now. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?